0: Hey, Intelligent Squared listeners, producer Faye Adobita here. I just wanted to let you know about our first Intelligent Squared collection, Black History and Culture. We're revisiting some of our favorite live events and podcasts from the past 20 years, showcasing great creators and thinkers, including the co-founder of the Black Lives Matter movement, Alicia Garza, poet and activist, Benjamin Zephaniah, and playwright, novelist, critic, and broadcaster, Bonnie Greer. We also delve into debates such as should the West pay reparations for slavery and hip-hop versus Shakespeare. Just search Intelligence Squared, Black History and Culture, wherever you get your podcasts. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world and whatever you're doing...
1: Hello, I'm Faraj Asat and I'm the producer of How I Found My Voice, a podcast by Intelligence Squared. We hope you enjoyed this episode, but just before the main event, I wanted to let you know that this season of How I Found My Voice is sponsored by The Out, an innovative premium car rental service powered by Jaguar Land Rover. If you live in London, like me, and want to get out of the city for a weekend, The Out is designed for us. It's a premium car rental service without the hassle. Just download the app, book your vehicle, and a car will be delivered to your doorstep within three hours of booking. When you're done, the car will also be picked up from your chosen location. My colleague recently used the service and loved how easy it was. He went on a last-minute weekend trip to Brighton using a Land Rover Discovery Sport. They have a whole range of premium vehicles to choose from, including the Range Rover Sport and the all-electric Jaguar I-Pace. In every booking, you get unlimited mileage, additional drivers, fully comprehensive insurance, and even the congestion and dart charge included. So if you're a Londoner who wants to rent a car in style, download the Out app today. Now
2: let's go to this week's episode. I just could not imagine a prime minister being able to bypass parliament. To me, we would then be sliding towards a dictatorship. I know what happens under a dictatorship. I know the division that happens in a country. I know how race is set against race or people against people. I grew up watching it. George Orwell said, in a time of dishonesty, the most revolutionary thing or action is telling the truth. And if we are living in a time of dishonesty, then I am going to be a revolutionary because I'm going to tell the truth.
3: Hello and welcome to How I Found My Voice, a podcast from Intelligence Squared. I'm Samira Ahmed and I'm going behind the celebrity persona to find out what influences shaped their success. How did artists, writers, activists and business leaders grow up to become such great and unique communicators? If you enjoy this episode, do rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Gina Miller is a businesswoman and a campaigner, most famous for leading and winning two legal challenges against the British government. In 2017, she used her voice to trigger one of the most remarkable challenges in British constitutional history, the repercussions of which are still being felt. She brought a legal challenge through the courts to block the attempt of the British government to trigger the process of leaving the EU without Parliament, having the ultimate say. The judges ruled unanimously that Parliament was sovereign, but the decision was regarded by pro-Leave news media and politicians as a betrayal, and she found herself the figure singled out for hatred and vitriol. Her second victory was only a few months ago in September 2019, when the Supreme Court ruled that Boris Johnson's decision to suspend Parliament was unlawful. A recent book, Rise, Life Lessons in Speaking Out, Standing Tall and Leading the Way, make Gina Miller, I think, the single most perfect guest for how I found my voice. And uh, welcome. <laughs> um, in fact, you even talk in your book about the, the actual idea of finding your voice. But I want mm-hmm. to take you back to the start. You grew up in what was then a British colony, now Guyana, in the late 1960s and 70s in South America, where your father was attorney general, very involved in politics, and your mother ran the household. What was home like?
2: Home was full of uh, noise and colour and uh, laughter and food. My mum was always cooking the best and baking cookies and and we were given so much freedom. And I think that's where I started uh, sort of almost building make-believe worlds of what I was going to do Uh, in the garden. We had a huge garden. My mother loved plants and flowers. She actually was a specialist in bringing orchids from the rainforest and then, you know, grafting them onto trees and and, uh, propagating from them. So uh, it was extraordinary to watch her, the way she made things grow. But it was just full of life and and learning, actually, because every um, evening we'd have the BBC World Service on. My father used to come home and tell me about his work at court, what he was doing. We had everything. All our senses were stimulated, I think, as children growing up.
3: Your father was clearly a major influence. We should say that although he became Attorney General, he'd had you know quite a modest start in life, very much a self-made man.
2: If, if I ever write a book, and again, if I find the time and energy to do another book, I think I'd love to write about him because you're quite right. He was from one of the poorest parts. It's an area called Berbice, and he was um, at the age of 14, couldn't read or write, was serving uh, petrol, saving his money, went to night school, and then became a lawyer and then Attorney General. So he was... He was extremely calm, very passionate about justice, very strong sense of right and wrong. But he also had a really special place in his heart for me. And um, he would come home, he'd brush my very long hair and we'd talk about his day. He'd talk about the things he saw and did and the people who came into his office and he helped. So we had a really strong relationship. And to me, he was the best man in the world. You also had a lot of brothers, so
3: I gather (laughs) you're a bit of a tomboy.
2: Yes, growing up, yes, I I have a much younger sister, so three brothers. um, And having all that space and playing outdoors, it was the usual... Cowboys and Indians, and we didn't have television. Um, one of my regrets is that I got rid of all my Marvel comic books. I, you know, every week we get a new Marvel comic book. Little did I know how much they'd be worth now because yeah. I actually got rid of them. <laughs> and you read DC because you liked Wonder Woman a lot, who
3: I adored, and I'm really interested <laughs> in the in the strong women I meet who grew up reading Wonder Woman,
2: Wonder Woman, uh, Black Panther, you name them. You know, all DC Marvel um, because we didn't have that television, um, but books and comics and all that sort of uh, imagination. And I think the thing, looking back on comic books, which I find really interesting now that I'm an adult is uh, realising how many boundaries those comic books actually broke because it was very much about somebody standing up for injustice yes. and defending the vulnerable, defending people uh, who couldn't defend themselves. So it had a very strong sense of you know being the hero in them. And when you grow up and that's what you're yearning to read the next week, it does give you a very strong sense of you can be a hero too.
3: And it's interesting how from a very young age you have this instinctive sense of justice because you sort of befriended, were, obviously there's a great gap between the, the relatively well-off and the poor and Guyana and you used to give, I think you gave us <laughs> dress, you gave food to a, a child who lived nearby.
2: Yes, because uh, I'd come home when my father was doing well and we moved to, to a lovely house. Um, down the street, you'd have the children without any shoes, playing with the water hydrant when it uh, leaked, you know, they were uh, street children. Um, and I used to watch them from, my, from the balcony and feel that it was just wrong that they didn't have things. And I did. So I'd give away. So as I said, my mother's cookies, I'd sneak them out and give them away. Um, and being a tomboy, we had our Sunday best and my mother bought this dress, which I absolutely hated. <laughs> so I thought, well, I don't like it. But um, it was, uh, you know, the dress with the red patent shoes from Clark's and all the British things that we've got. Yeah. Um, so I gave it away. And My mother used to, I used to get punished because she thought I was the most disorganised child and that I used to lose everything. I'm very organised and uh, I'd actually giving it, I gave it away. And years later, I told her about this um, because we got caned growing up, not because my parents were particularly strict, but it's just the way things were at that time. And uh, I told her that I never lost anything. And uh, she said, well, I would have caned you anyway for lying. And I thought, well, I would have got it anyway. So... <laughs> But it was uh, no, I just I've always had this very strong I don't know if it's nature or nurture, but I've always had this sense of curiosity and questioning and sense of injustice
3: you were set to boarding school in england uh, the eastbourne in sussex a boarding school run by nuns and you've already no, it wasn't run by nuns it, wasn't it was a, that, nuns. when i was in
2: in, in um, guiana in british guiana i went to school run by british nuns so that was i went to a convent oh. back in guiana right so it was just a girls boarding, boarding school
3: yes. um, when you came to eastbourne but you've already mentioned kind of growing up with you know the bbc world service and this real sense of what Britain was, which a lot of people who grew up
2: in former British colonies have this... Most Commonwealth countries yeah. have that sense of, you know, the, the, almost it's the, it's the idol. You know, it's ironic because people think that Eldorado's in Guiana, Well, to us growing up, Britain was Eldorado. Yeah.
3: So I just wonder what kind of culture shock it must have been <laughs> with this very idealised view of Britain that you came with. And in a way, I wonder if ultimately that's what led to you later on being prepared to to bring that court challenge because you had a sense of what British justice and British fair play was. I have
2: to say that growing up with all that colour and freedom and parrots and monkeys, you know, I had a pet monkey growing up and and to land in... Eastbourne in a boarding school was quite a shock. Also because I I was an avid reader of all British authors. I'd read, by the time I came to England as 11, I'd read probably most of the Bronte sisters' books or most of the Dickens' books. So I had a real, you know, I was so excited. So it was a little different from what I was expecting and, you know, from the Famous Five and all those sorts of things you grew up with. And so, first of all, it hadn't dawned on me that my parents were actually going to leave me because I'd never left home before. And I'd always had my my family around me and my parents there. So to be left on your own, it was it was a shock. And that's when I discovered that I had real strength, I suppose, because I had to be brave. It was um, coming from a a a, you know a convent where taught by British nuns. My English was very perfect. Um, It wasn't couldn't can't. So I sounded very strange. You know, it was more... Would not, could not. It it wasn't uh, sort of spoken English. It was more, you know, learning from a book. And uh, so taught English is very different from actually speaking it. And uh, I just dressed differently. I sounded differently. I couldn't understand how you eat peas with a fork. I remember (laughs) thinking, how do you do that then? Um, But everything was different. And uh, I did feel... um, that I was alone. But I had my brother, who was two years older than me, down the road in Eastbourne College. So we kept each other strong and we were very close anyway, but those years made us even closer. Why did your parents send you so far away on your own, do you think? My parents had always hoped that one day we would come maybe to university or sixth form, but never at that young age. But at the time, my father was instrumental in starting an opposition party against our then dictator, and he wasn't leading it. He was instrumental in forming it and policies, uh, designing policies and the legal structures of the party. And a very charismatic young man who was going to lead it was killed in a car bomb. And my parents found out that my brother and I were the next targets or that we were going to be uh, targeted or taken, um, well, in those days, probably killed. So we were snuck away to England, which was a huge sacrifice for my parents, both financially but also just emotionally, to send us so far away. But they chose Eastbourne because it was small, distance... They felt we would be safe there.
3: Um, There's an incident that you write about in your book when girls at the school empty the bottle of L'Air temps perfume that your mother gave you down the sink and refill it with water. And clearly the perfume is this amazing emotional bond to your mother who you miss. It's such a horrible moment. But the way you handled it when you later confront the chief bully is so surprising. Tell me what you did and why you handled it that way.
2: So the perfume is because my mother wanted something I could dab and, you know, it would be the scent of her. So, yes, it was very important. And the bottle was so beautiful. I yes. like beautiful things that it had the dove on the stopper. And I always used to watch her putting it on. So it was very, you know, for me, it was so, held so much emotion and so much value. It wasn't just perfume. And yes, they did pour it down the sink. And uh, when I smelt that it was, just, I just knew instantly it didn't have the same sort of scent. I wasn't going to let the girls see me crying, so I went off to the to the toilets and got a towel and just cried my eyes out into the towels, because I wasn't going to let them, you know, see that they had got to me, as it were. But then I started thinking about why they did it and what is it that they were trying to do. And the chief bully, I sort of used to, I watched her for a few days, and I thought, you're not very happy. Um, You're there's something missing, so I'll make you happier. So I gave her a present a, a bracelet that my parents had had made for me and i said to her this is a present so that we could be friends and i she never bullied me after that and she never actually said anything to me um she never bullied it but years later when with all the um uh, you know the brexit stuff and everything the court cases she actually contacted me and said it was her most prized possession how interesting did she say sorry she didn't but she then explained because her parents who were diplomats, um, hardly ever saw her, forgot her birthday. She was hurting herself. So she was taking that hurt out on me. And that's what I observed. Interesting.
3: I have been amazed at the range of work you've held down uh, when you <laughs> were young. So you worked as a hotel chambermaid while you stood at school because your parents for a while weren't able to send money for you because no, of um, the situation in Ghana. Yes. yes. What did that experience teach you? Because you was, talked about how you were so shocked at how filthy, you know, rich <laughs> people would leave rooms.
2: <laughs> I was it, the whole thing. I found fascinating. I, I always try and I, I mean, I'm am I am genuinely physically and and mentally curious about everything. And I just find every what can I learn from the situation. But going, I walked. I, I'd set this plan up that I was going to get myself a job, and so I sort of methodically was going to start at one end of the seafront in Eastbourne and walk down. And the first one I went into was this huge hotel called the Grand Hotel. And they said, yes, their jobs go round the back. So I was so shocked that I actually got a job. But chambermaiding would be sort of normally a couple of hours in the morning before school and on the weekends. And it fascinated me because it's a very—it's a five-star hotel. And I thought people who come and stay in this hotel will be wonderful people that I can watch and learn from and uh, see what books they're reading next to their beds. And I was just so shocked at how filthy some of the rooms were. And... Books they'd be reading were like Mills and Boone, and uh, I was, I realized that um, money doesn't necessarily buy you manners or or, or good behaviour is a lesson I think I learned from that. So now, if my children and I, if we were staying in a nice hotel, I always make sure my husband always laughs because I put all the towels in the bath and I get the kids to write a note to the chambermaid and they just think I'm very peculiar. No,
3: no, no, good <laughs> for you. Um, and I do want to mention that you did some modelling for a while. Um, was this in the, what, 1980s, would it be?
2: This was at university because, I, I you know, again, it was about money, it was about yeah. whatever, and that I found a very strange experience.
3: Yeah. Yes, well, I want to ask you about that because, you see, I, I was a teenager in the 80s, and I have really clear memories of the few women of Asian heritage that I saw yes. in magazines. It was very exciting to see women who looked like you. And, you know, I know you earned good money. I know you feel uneasy about it, but I just thought you should know that it was a moment where we started to see ourselves represented in magazines. And I suspect I would have seen images of you in fashion magazines and been thrilled.
2: It was quite extraordinary because I'd be um, sitting in front. You literally are treated like a piece of meat, a commodity. I'd be sitting in a casting and they'd say, oh, well, we don't mind having somebody of colour, but, you know, she's a bit too dark or we could maybe lighten her. It was extraordinary. I'd be sitting right there. Um, or, you know, we can't have her on the cover of this or this product because, you know, what would the, you can't have um, uh, coloured women with makeup because then it would put off other people buying the makeup or hair product. It was extraordinary the, the conversations I'd be in. So to actually get a job and then be able to represent, you know, for someone like Monsoon, who I did a, a season for, yes. um, I, I was aware that it was, it was sending out a very positive image, which. I'm very aware of my responsibility and I always have a very strong sense of responsibility. So even though I hated the job um, and the money was good, I was also I was doing going to do it to the best of my ability. So it's really great to hear that because I never got any feedback, but I was hoping it would be positive.
3: Yeah, and I know you felt you were exoticized in yes. terms of how you would be dressed or the it way It was strange. Would you.
2: I always remember one other shoot and uh, they'd started doing the whole sort of animal print um, uh, sort of material. So that was the one I was going to do for the sh- for that fashion shoot. But what they then did was to put blonde streaks in my hair so I literally looked like a lion or a tiger. I mean, it was a bizarrest look. And in those days we had big hair and, you know, all layered and very big hair and I looked like a gone wrong Tina Turner, I think. <laughs>
3: Well, I don't think there's any such thing as a gone wrong (laughs) Tina Turner. You did a law degree at the University of East London, but left before finishing. And I know there's been a kind of good ending because very recently you were awarded an honorary degree. That I think sort of was it thirty, 30 years, years to the all, day? Yes, it's almost, quite extraordinary uh, that you left. Um, but can you tell me what happened? Why you ended up leaving?
2: I so wanted to be like my father. So my dream was always to be a. a, a, a I was going to be the best criminal barrister I could be. That was my plan. So I went to University of East London. It was an odd time, I think, uh, in the sort of early 80s, because as women of colour going to university, there was a certain way you were supposed to behave um, and be part of a group.
3: Was this, dare I say, to do with assumptions about being Asian yes, and being Muslim? Yes,
2: I went to university and for the first year and second year, by the time I got into my second year and then third year, there was a lot of abuse because why wasn't I joining the Asian society? Why hadn't I not joined the you know, whatever society it was? Um, And why was I dressing the way I was? Why was I not? So I actually, long story short, I was about to take my finals. I was leaving one night from campus to get on the tube from barking back to to Highbury, where I lived. And I was attacked on campus by a group of men, Asian men, who thought that I was, you know, I wasn't behaving properly. And I was raped. I'm so sorry. Um, So I was then... It broke me for about seven months. Um, sorry, it's still incredibly emotional. Of course, um, I'm, I'm so great. I appreciate so, you talking about but, it. But but it's really important because this idea, you know, it's is it's why I think it's important to talk about it is because there's so many assumptions made, and I think being honest about things is, is the best way of exposing what really is going on, but also helping other people, because you have to understand that prejudice comes from many places. And in many forms, there is no one place it comes from, no one place where bullying or misogyny or racism comes from. It comes in all f- sorts of shapes and forms um, and that uh, standing up has sometimes its price to pay because I had stood up to this group for a long time. And they I think the the thing that really triggered it for them When I was in those all those months, I locked myself in my bedroom for a very long time because I felt so dirty and ashamed. I didn't tell the police or anything. I mean, I just felt they wouldn't believe me. I think what and I put it together that what had happened was I I was a real cricket fan. I played cricket for a while. So I was actually at uh, the overwatching watching uh, a a match, England-Pakistan match. And I think some of them were there and saw me with my then, well, he then became my husband, but my white boyfriend. So I think that was the ultimate sort of sin, if you like, in their eyes. Um, I just I'm just appalled at what you've gone through. Um,
3: you built a career in marketing and finance and I was struck by the 1980s. This was kind of the yuppie dream. <laughs> um, I'm interested in what drew you into that world because it's a very macho world, you know, and I wonder how far you in, enjoyed it because you had some pretty ghastly encounters.
2: With... <laughs> oh, I definitely enjoyed it. I mean, I, I mean, I still love working in the world of, of investments because people don't realize that it's actually it's got a huge societal uh, um Vocation almost to help people to look after themselves when they're older. Financial health, I think, is just marketed completely wrongly. But that's another discussion, perhaps. But no, well, that's um, another of your campaigns. <laughs> it's another yeah. of my campaigns. But uh, so when I was studying marketing, I had I was fortunate to have two wonderful lecturers, who also were still working as consultants, very very experienced. So they they weren't just academics; they'd actually worked in in the real world, as it were. And uh, they ran a little consultancy, and for my dissertation. I said to them, I was quite interesting in how, in, interested in areas, sectors that were being that were badly marketed and really didn't understand how to connect and build trust with their consumers. And they once jokingly said to me, "Well, that's the world of finance and investments." And so they started telling me they happened to be doing a project on um, the stakeholder pension, which was this idea, crazy idea that you could sell a pension at a supermarket checkout. I don't know if you remember this, this was a, you know, test where so they're all going to sell pensions with your food, with your, you know, weekly shopping um, to people who don't have money to afford the weekly shopping. So the whole thing was quite bizarre. But um, yeah, so. I worked with them on that project and I found it fascinating. I really found it. I I was intellectually stimulated as well as, as, I I mean, I enjoyed every moment. And so I decided that uh, that's the world I'd go into.
3: When the financial crash of 2008 happened, you and your husband, Alan Miller, your third husband, you'd you'd taken a break from the city. He was a very well-known investment fund manager. You were clearly both successful and you went off travelling with your young
2: children. How did the crash change your life? So we were in Panama, which I have to say... (laughs) Several media have said, Oh, you must have been in Panama because you were, you know, doing money laundering or whatever. We were actually just traveling in the rainforest. Um, but we got a call on that fateful weekend when the it looked like RBS was going to down, that the the financial crash was going to start, the banks were going to go uh, uh, under. Um, and we were called on the Friday by our then uh, advisor who said, You've got to come back to the UK, we think. Everything's good to go. That's the weekend that Gordon Brown then obviously saved the banks. Then on the Sunday, but we didn't know, and it looked as though we were going to lose more or less everything because we had everything invested and we we had we had gone away. We'd left it to other people because we were we were taking time out. We'd more or less a, sort of done a semi retirement and wanted to travel with the children. And uh, we we got a flight. We dropped everything. Got on a flight. Came back. The banks didn't go under, but you know the crash was was unfolding. And uh, lots of people started contacting us, because, uh, friends and family, saying they were caught in it. And for the next three months, we basically worked almost like a charity, helping people. People lost eighty-five percent of their savings. My father-in-law, the money he'd left for our children, his grandchildren trust went. You know, people were losing their life savings over those months. Did and, you and your uh, husband lose a lot as well? We did. Yes, we mm-hmm. did. Um, not as much. I mean, we, we were lucky enough that because he he knew what was going on, he we, we liquidated, it's called, and ran to cash. So I think we sold out as much as we could. But there were things we couldn't, we couldn't sell that were closed out. So we got some of it back maybe three years later, three or four years later, but there was an impact. There was a, a, a significant impact for us. And then when we went off again over that Christmas and we started talking and reflecting, I just said to Alan that I have this terrible feeling that nothing is going to change and that uh, what's caused the crash is just going to be swept under the carpet. So I said to him, we have an opportunity here with your experience and my experience, um, also my campaigning experience, which I've been doing for a very long time. I said, we have a real opportunity here to do something to not just campaign, but actually to show that a new type of company who can act in the customer's best interest and look after people's money in an ethical way can actually be successful. So that's what we've been doing for 10 years, but in the meantime also fighting the city because unfortunately um, my suspicions have come to pass in that not a lot has changed. We have an industry that is so opaque. What I find heartbreaking about the whole the way pensions investments are run is that it's people who are doing the right thing. They're being prudent. They're being sensible. They're putting their money away so they're not a burden on the state. And they're the very people who are being exploited and ripped off. And it's mm. just wrong. Well, this sense of, you know, people who are trying to do the right thing and being
3: treated unfairly is such a passionate driver in your life. And I want to ask now about Brexit, because soon after the 2016 referendum, you were approached to be one of the claimants bringing a legal challenge over um, Article 50 and whether it could be invoked without Parliament having the final say. Can you just sum up how you came to be involved in the case and why it was so important to you?
2: So one of my campaigns that I've been involved with for quite a long time is the whole idea, because it comes to my father's, this sense of what happens with our constitution and rights and human rights, So I'd been looking at the way powers had been changing in Parliament for about 10 years. These things called Henry VIII powers or secondary legislation had been increasingly being used since the time of actually Blair. Very quietly, things had been changing rather than being debated properly and scrutinised by by our elected MPs. So I was aware of the problem happening. Um, And then to me, the most blatant of all was when the announcement was made that um, Mrs May was going to use what's called the royal prerogative. And I knew what that meant. Um, because it's used for wars, it's used in the international arena, but you can't use it domestically to, to change people's rights and triggering an article fifty without Parliament's debates would have changed our rights, which it has done already or it will do. So I was at an event at the law firm who eventually represented me, michch They were not my lawyers. I was not a client of theirs. but I happened to be I'm quite a fatalist. I think things happen, and I'm put in positions for a reason, but Months before it had been organised that I would be at an event talking about why the diversity dial hasn't moved in the city, because it hasn't. And I made comments such as, because some of the uh, women who are held out as examples are really just men in skirts in that they've gone to the same universities, same unconscious biases. That's not really diversity. It's not about external diversity. It's actually more about mindset and comments like that. And one of the senior lawyers said to me afterwards, So is there anything else you're passionate about? And we had this quite heated conversation and I said to him, I think what's happening with with Article 50, how it's going to be triggered, this whole process is illegal. And he just looked at me and said, well, yes, it is. We've been thinking the same. So come and join, you know, a conversation, a meeting we're having tomorrow. So the next day I joined a half a day meeting in the end where they had, they did have two existing clients who were thinking of bringing a case. So we couldn't. Decide. So I said to them, look, time is of the essence. We all agreed time was of the essence. So we said, we'll send the letter to the government, but not name the claimants. So we hadn't decided if we were going to be, it was just we were going to bring an action. So we then got a hearing on the 19th of July. Um, Lord Leveson gave us permission. We didn't even know if we'd get permission to bring the case. And then the backlash started. And the other two decided that they couldn't. And I think it was completely the right decision. They're very well known. Their families would not have been protected. They're both um, men. Both men. Just, I have to ask, with <laughs> the
3: benefit of hindsight and all that's happened to you since and how you have, you know, received so much hatred, so much unreasonable abuse, do you sort of feel slightly resentful that you were left to take it on your own or do you have
2: no regrets? No, 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 not at all. Quite, the, And I think it was absolutely right, the thing for them to do. I don't think they could have protected their families uh, now with what I what has happened. They were too well known, and uh, I wasn't. But also because I think if you're going to put yourself on a platform, you have to be where you be. You have to be willing to be completely honest and not have things in your skeletons, in your closet. And I'm very out there in my entire life, so it's very hard for people to to break me. I mean, I know lots and lots of people who still are trying to, but I'm tough enough. So I do think it was the right decision. And just I know you must feel frustrated because you know that you've had to
3: clarify this so often. There are those who say your motivation has been about stopping Brexit mm-hmm. because you, you know, have always been a Remainer. What would you say
2: now? So on balance, I was a Remainer. A sort of, I, I would have loved it to been Remain and Reform because you know I think there's an extraordinary amount of reform that needs in the EU. And ironically, by the way, they, those reforms are starting because of Brexit. So we may not benefit from them, but they are starting. That's it. There's so many ironies about Brexit, but. Even more important than Brexit is actually the stability of our country. And because we don't have this written constitution, if the precedent had been set that a prime minister could use the royal prerogative or prorogue parliament for a long period of time, then any prime minister in future could do that. And that's the problem. Precedents set then become almost the law or like the law. In a, and I just could not imagine a prime minister being able to bypass parliament, to me, we would then be sliding towards a dictatorship, which is what I grew up hearing about and seeing. My father, I know what happens under a dictatorship. I know the division that happens in a country. I know how race is set against race or people against people. I grew up watching it. I grew up with my father trying to mend that. My father trying to stop, you know, we had villages where people were being burnt and killed because they were from a different race. I, I honestly know what poison in society looks like and feels like. So the to me, it just filled me with horror that there was any hint that we would be sliding
3: towards that. And here we are two years later. You know, I just wonder, how do you feel now about where we are and having won, you know, a kind of a second uh, challenge in 2019?
2: Looking back, you asked me if I maybe get to irritated or angry. I am the thing that makes me most angry. And I use the word angry. I don't often get angry, but I use the word on purpose because, or deliberately, because having fought for the MPs to be rightly where they should be to debate and analyse, on both occasions they didn't do it. So when I, we won the first case um, on Article 50, they just rubber-stamped it. They should have insisted on discussing what sort of Brexit, the direction of travel, the impact studies. They did nothing. They didn't do the scrutinising job they did. And again, in this prorogation case, when they came back, they just argued with each other. And the language was disgraceful. It was more like a fish market than a parliament. And I watched in absolute horror bearing in mind the second case was much more difficult because we had so little time, three reminders this
3: is Boris Johnson wanted to, to suspend close down Parliament. down Parliament for the
2: five weeks. And, you know, this was a much more difficult case. I was literally on my own um, because there was a Scottish case. But for the British-English case, I was on my own. I didn't have any funders. We had to go to court so quickly. We didn't get what's called a cost uh, agreement in place before I'd launched the case. So if I'd lost, all the costs would have been on me. We got it afterwards, but we didn't at the time. And this case was so much more difficult. And every expert was telling us that we wouldn't win. And I was saying, but we've got to win on the black and white letter of the law. This is wrong. And so it's a much tougher case this time. And so... For them to behave like that after we had invested so much, not just me, but my legal team, our juniors were sleeping, working in the offices all weekend. It was a, a, an extraordinary task to bring a case to the Supreme Court in three weeks. It was. And um, you've said
3: yourself, everyone was telling you, you, you might not win this. You were on your own. There was all the cost risk. One could say it's fearlessness, but it, it's, its I'm genuinely amazed that you had the guts
2: to do this on your own. It's not. I'm not fearless or brave or courageous or any of those things. I am consumed by fear. I'm fearful of what happens when you don't speak up. And I find that uh, I'm referring myself back to people I admire in books, going back to books. And George Orwell, who said, in a time of dishonesty, the most revolutionary thing or action is telling the truth. And... I keep thinking of those words. And if we are living in a time of dishonesty, then I am going to be a revolutionary because I'm going to tell the truth.
3: Lady Hale, the judge uh, who proclaimed this ruling, was hailed as a hero. She was an upholder of the law. Some people think that your role in this victory was actually overshadowed and that perhaps as a woman of colour, that was part of the reason.
2: What, what do you think? It is very interesting what happened because there's a couple of journalists who, who've picked up on the, the whole spider sort of brooch that she was wearing saying, but Gina, you were nicknamed the Black Widow Spider in the city for your campaigning sort of 10 years ago and nobody sort of made that connection. But what I, what I think is actually not unfair to me, so I'll come back to me in a minute, but I think the fact is there were 11 judges there. And Lady Hale, yes, is the head of the Supreme Court, but it was a unanimous judge judgment by all 11 judges, which is only the second time that's happened, obviously the first time. And these are things I'm so proud of, and I hope my father is proud of me, yeah. um, is that in the first case it was 11 you know, uh, judges and now this time it was 11 judges too. But they got overshadowed they got overshadowed those other judgments i mean the judgment was a superb judgment um if you read it the case law the reference that judgment will be taught more than the first one because it's an extraordinary bit of legal uh, of legal theater almost if you can call it that the way it's written it's, it it really is very sound um because they were so aware but they never get mentioned the other judges never get mentioned it's just lady okay. Hale. what about you and for me i find it very odd because Yes, I was the claimant, you know, everything else had happened. I do find it odd that it's it's her victory because that's the way it's been painted. Mm -hmm. And I know a lot of people have said, was it deliberate? I have been told that there was a deliberate messaging that was going out from number 10 to do two things, which was not to acknowledge me at all in the case. So they would never mention my name or give me any oxygen or call the case by my name, whereas in first it was Miller 1, they were not going to do that. And then they were also not going to talk about uh, me. But there's this idea they wouldn't talk about me, the case. It would just be about the judgment and Lady Hill. They being the news media. Yes. So Mm. I think it, it was a deliberate ploy that sort of seems to have come out from number 10 as well.
3: Can we talk a bit about politicians then? Because in a sense, you've had to go to court twice over attempts by two different prime ministers to play fast and loose with the constitution, shall we say. Whose job is it to hold politicians accountable? Because talking to you, I just feel young girl who grew up, always asking <laughs> questions. It seems to me you have the instincts of a great journalist. Oh,
2: thank you. Um, I've never seen myself as a journalist, but I think I am appalled, not just by the way uh, the government and politicians are behaving, but also the office of the opposition is actually to be the op- official opposition is to hold the government's feet to the fire and to scrutinise. So I think both the government and the opposition have been letting down our democracy and our country, because they should have been the ones doing this. It shouldn't have been up to me. Because then the other thing, that's what's happened, is that I also find it extraordinary that the opposition then will claim, for example, in the first place, that they were the ones who actually got the government to debate and come to parliament. And this time, they were the They didn't do their job. If they'd done their job, I wouldn't have had to stand up and bear any of this. Mm. So, you know, it's very, very difficult when you have both sides, if you like. You know, two wrongs don't make a right. And unfortunately, I think that's where we are. Well, the other important player in all this are the news media.
3: The historian Ian Kershaw, in writing Rollercoaster Europe, and would have thought very carefully about this, said of the EU referendum coverage that the BBC, whether through incompetence or a misguided idea of impartiality, failed to challenge the lies of the EU campaign, things like the £350 million a week back to the NHS on the side of a bus. This sense that our news media have been failing at an absolute moment of crisis. Do you think they have?
2: Absolutely. And I'd actually add to his comment about the referendum is also the fact of having given the weighting they gave to Mr Farage was, were, it, it just didn't make any sense. That's not the what leader, you do. The leader, leader, you, you don't do that. Because, you know, if you look at the UKIP uh, um, at the time, and the way they stood as they were not a, a, an equal party. So to give him equal airtime is completely wrong, in my view, uh, a commercial decision there, that maybe led to some of uh, giving him airtime and oxygen to some of the things that were really not true, or blatant lies, really, but uh, uh, such as immigration, etc. But I also love history and look back and and every hundred years or so, populism is not a new phenomenon. Every hundred years or so, when we get a discontented populace because there is a level of society who have become arrogant, lazy, out of touch, whatever you want to call it, then you set, get this rise of populism. And at those times, what happens, it's almost like a playbook. When people are trying to then gain back power or those who seize the opportunity in the crisis of a populist crisis who try to then come to power, the three things they do is they devalue experts and academics or anybody who has a voice, a reasoned voice. They take over the media or they coerce coerce the media into becoming a propaganda machine. And then the third thing they do is they sow division. So it's always othering. So those three things are actually the sort of almost Janet and John of how you create an unstable society and win from it. And that is actually what I can see happening now. And what I find so dismaying is that media seem to be complicit in it, in that they are allowing politicians to do monologues of dishonesty, if you like, or half-truths or... Not answering a question. You think it you know, should be more analysis rather than. A this is what they say. You know, a journalist, as you say, is to in, interrogate to get the information out to help inform the public. So be it a listener or a reader. You know, it's to translate, and investigate, and inform. What it is that a politician or actually any situation, it's not about sensationalising. And my concern at the moment is the way we are reading and consuming news tends to be on a phone. Have you got any
3: examples of, of you know, particular moments in this election campaign? You should say we're speaking sort of two weeks still to go till polling day on December the 12th of, of that kind of coverage that concern you.
2: Absolutely, I mean, a very topical uh, example at the moment is that you 've got the Conservative Party saying that they're going to actually they're going to there's going to be fifty thousand more new nurses well, they're not going to be fifty thousand new nurses because what they 've done is they're counting the nineteen thousand nurses who are already employed in the NHs so they're double counting nurses who are already employed, so they're really going to try and get thirty one thousand new nurses, not fifty. But they keep going out there and saying they're going to get 50,000 new nurses or that they're going to get 40,000 new hospitals. I mean, some journalists are interrogating uh, them. Sorry,
3: not 40,000 new hospitals. Sorry, sorry
2: 40, 40 new hospitals. Yeah, That would be amazing if you get 40,000, <laughs> but 40 new hospitals and it's really six. And so it's the way they're being allowed to say things. The more you play into people's emotions, that's how they're going to win this election. This election is not facts. It's not about policy. It's actually about using people's exhaustion on Brexit. The country just wants to move on. And what they're doing is exploiting that because oven ready Brexit does not exist. It is a fantasy. Brexit is not going to be over on the 31st of January, if you vote this uh, conservative government in or a conservative government in, because it's only the end of the first part. We have to go into phase two, which is the difficult bit of, of negotiating a future relationship. And the average time to do that is between five and seven years. So this idea is going to be over is a lie. It is a blatant lie. There is no such thing as an oven-ready Brexit. Mr Johnson gets away with saying that and is never counted. You've set up a tactical voting site for this election. Tell me about that and how it works. So Remain United, which is a tactical site I've set up, is now the third time I'm doing this, so 2017... I felt it was completely wrong because at the beginning of that election, when Mrs. May called it on the 19th of April, she was sitting on, believe it or not, something like a 180 seat majority was the projection. And to my mind, that would have been a, a almost an autocratic government. We wouldn't have a real democracy if you have a parliament with that huge a majority. So I was very concerned about that. So I set up a tactical voting website, first time it had ever been done in the sort of scale that we did it in 2017. And we managed to engage, we know 6.5 million people tactically voted. But I mean, Mrs May helped. She didn't do a great campaign. So, you know, she dented that majority. And a lot of that was about tactical voting. We did it again in the EU elections. And now I'm doing it again, because if Boris Johnson has managed to get candidates who have signed up to this pledge that sort of that they will not counter or vote against, I mean, or be themselves almost um, in Parliament, and that's extremely worrying. So I think... We need to dent the majority to have an opportunity to return a parliament that is going to be more representative of the country. And is not going to allow them to deny parliament its voice for the next five years, because If you look at what the manifesto says, page 48 of the Conservative manifesto is very worrying to me because in there they talk about rewriting or looking at the royal prerogative, the way Parliament works, the way the House of Lords works, the Human Rights Act. They're giving themselves a huge amount of power. You then look at that in conjunction with the withdrawal agreement bill which also has seven clauses that gives the government huge swathes of power. And it's a power grab in both those documents. And that is extremely worrying. I just want to go back to something about your tactical voting
3: website. It's not
2: just for people who are Remainers, is it? No, no, it's not. It's not. It's for anybody who is a soft leaver, whoever thinks that um, this withdrawal agreement is dangerous to our country. And it's a bad deal. It really is not about Europe. It's a bit in it that changes us as a constitution, as a country, as a democracy. But even worse than that, it's the fact that if they cannot deliver what they are aiming to deliver, no deal is still on the table. So I get contacted by lots of people who voted leave. No point talking to the converted. I spend most of my talking and trying to come engage with people who don't disagree with me. And a lot of people who voted leave are contacting and using the website. We've had hundreds and thousands on there. We need to get to millions. We've got we're close to that. But they are worried too. It's about people worried about the fact that do we have in a possible conservative government people with the levels of honesty, trust and intellectual rigour to face the issues we have facing this country because we do have a broken country. There are hard questions coming down and we haven't even started talking about climate migration or the effects of technology on the workplace or the ageing of our population. There are big, serious questions and issues. And we have to have politicians who are up to the job. And that is what I think people are worried about. If we can get a 40% of remainers and soft leavers to vote tactically in the recommendations in the key marginals, there will not be a conservative majority. There will be a Labour minority government. And my prediction is that there will be a Labour minority government with the SNP. You pinpointed earlier
3: the, the dangerous situation we're in, where the country is tired, people are angry, um, and they're also frightened. And a lot of very reasonable people are kind of saying, "I've had enough," and they're keeping their head down. Or this whole let's let's just get it over let's with.
2: I, I completely
3: understand that. I'm, I'm and I'm fascinated that your action through it all I guess the word I use is stamina that you have to stand (laughs) that you can see this long-term picture and why now more than ever it's important not to turn away how do you engage people who feel they're not like you they don't feel they want to stand up and attract the vitriol that they feel comes for making a stand against some of the things that are going on
2: I think they can do it. You don't have to do it in a big way. You don't have to. I'd say to people, don't give up on being human. Don't give up on your empathy. And even if you walk and you see someone crying on the bench, you see someone, our society is failing so much. Help wherever you can. That is also standing up. It's also using your voice. I can do it in a different way. But actually, every human action we, we, we reach out to, every hand we reach out with, is helping society. So don't be afraid. Don't give up. Everyone is contributing when they act that way and when you remember that we're empathetic beings. And I think that's the thing that gives me hope is I do believe in people and I do believe that we actually are better than this and that's why I'm going to keep on fighting. But what gives me stamina is slightly different because something changed in me about a year or so ago. Yes, I can be strong, fearful, whatever it is that drives me. But when the really awful terrible death threats started against me but against my children, things such as because my husband is Jewish and I'm from an ethnic minority, my children are Mongols, so they should have been put down at birth. When I'm told things like that or sent them, not on social media, in letters or emails, some, the thing that changed in me was that I will not let those voices be the voices of our society. I'm not going to stop fighting and allow my children to grow up in that world where they have to hide who they are. So I'm fighting for them and I'm fighting for the world I want them to live in. So it's actually given me more energy and more stamina and more determination that I will not stand away from this fight.
3: I want to just take you back to the little girl growing up in Guyana with this idea of Britain as this place of fair play and all the rest of it and here you are all these years later having gone to court twice and won and you will go down in history how do you feel about the journey you've made and is there anything you would do differently or would have done differently I'm not the sort of person
2: who looks back there's a lot to do Um, Ah. and I'm already planning what next well tell me that then that's a good that's a better Um, question I put something on the back burner when the whole Brexit I thought it was going to be a year so I never thought I'd still be here. to be I definitely didn't think I'd be going back to court again with all that I'd entailed. But uh, the thing I put in the back burner, I look around the world and modern democracies are failing. Populism is on the rise. And the thing that hasn't worked is trickle down economics. Capitalism has not worked. Yes, it's lifted millions of people out of poverty, but it has actually fractured society and put divisions that should not well, the Gulf's be there. Grown, hasn't it, the gulf the is and the huge. And so I talk about um, and want to get on to talking about responsible capitalism. The idea the drive for profit, the single drive for profit, the aggressive drive for profit, the single bottom line is destructive to society. And it's not fit for purpose in my view. So responsible capitalism comes with a triple bottom line where corporates All the drive is for people, profit and planet. And we have to give them equal weighting. And so the reforming of capitalism... Is what I want to talk about and campaign about in the future. So, just uh, <laughs> that's your to-do list. That's my to-do list, reform and then capitalism. reform capitalism. But also, um, I, I was very instrumental in the Modern Day Slavery Act, and my husband and I f- actually funded the report which led to Mrs. May's Act. Ironically, um, there's a lot of work to be doing there. Um, slavery is on the increase, and we have a disposal society where life is cheap. Um, but you know the the estimates are two point seven million people a year, women and children being trafficked around the world. We have to do something these there there are there are things that are wrong that need to be talked about and made people need to be made aware of. Gina Miller, thank
3: you so much.
2: My pleasure. Oh God, that was fun.
3: You've been listening to How I Found My Voice. I'm Samira Ahmed and the producer is Farah Jasset. We'd love to hear from you. Let us know what you think of this episode by rating it and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts.
1: Hello again, it's Farajasat, producer of How I Found My Voice. We really hope you enjoyed this week's show. Don't forget to subscribe and tune in to our episode next week. In the meantime, we wanted to give a big shout-out to our sponsor, The Out, an innovative premium car rental service powered by Jaguar Land Rover. If you're a Londoner and want to get out of the city for a weekend, download The Out app for a premium, hassle-free experience. Choose from a range of cars including the Range Rover Sport and all-electric Jaguar I-Pace. The car will be delivered and picked up from your doorstep. You get unlimited mileage, additional drivers, fully comprehensive insurance and even the congestion and dart charge included. Download the Out app today.
0: What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world and whatever you're doing...